this week that made me laugh. And so I like to share those things with you. Uh, and here it is. Uh, in case you can't see it real clear, at the top says that I don't understand how I failed the exam starter pack. Um, you got a picture of Netflix over here. That's a big time sink. A picture of a girl on her phone. Uh, down here, it's a picture of a girl supposed to be studying on her phone. Uh, there's a picture down here of a girl supposed to be in bed, uh, uh, again, on her phone. Uh, and you wonder, well, I, I don't understand. How did I do so poorly on this exam? Well, it's because you were incredibly distracted this entire time. And this is a thing that happens like a lot. I remember my little sister, when she got her cell phone, she's 16, and she used to go to bed with her phone on, and it would just be there next to her pillow, and she'd get a message at like 2 or 3 in the morning. She'd wake up and text and then put it back down and go back to sleep, and she couldn't understand why she was so exhausted in the morning and why, why she really needed to study so much harder for a chemistry exam. And I was like, do you really? You don't, you don't see it? You don't see all the, the red flags here? I had buddies in college did the same thing. You know, they, they wouldn't go to class because they were busy doing other things, or they, they wouldn't do the assigned reading, or they would stay up all night long the night before big tests and just cram and cram and cram, and they'd do terrible, obviously. It's a recipe for disaster, but they just they could not understand why their GPA was so low, and I thought, really? You, you, you don't see it? You, you don't see what's going on here? You bought the why did I fail the exam starter pack. These are all the things you shouldn't be doing. But this isn't just a student thing. This is a people thing. We all do this. We could just as easily replace these pictures with ones of cake and ice cream and cookies, and we could call it the, what do you mean I gained weight starter pack? Because we want to eat what we want to eat, right? It's tasty stuff. But the consequences of that choice is not always on the forefront of our minds. Or we could replace this with a picture of a, a new truck or a big TV, new iPhone, designer handbag, and call it the, why was my card declined starter pack? Because we buy that stuff, and sometimes we run that credit card so hot the plastic's about to melt away, but we're just not thinking about the consequences. The bill always comes due, whether that be literal or figurative. There's always a price. There is always a consequence to our choices and to our actions, but sometimes we're just not thinking about those things. They're just kind of hidden away in our blind spots. And blind spots, we've all got them. They're those, those parts of our life like we're just not considering. We don't see them. Sometimes we have blind spots in our financial life. Sometimes we have blind spots in our relational life. Sometimes we even have blind spots when it comes to our faith. Today we're continuing a series we started last week called Blood and Thunder. And the idea is very simple. As, as believing people, as people of faith, we oftentimes desire to see God work in our lives or in our families or in our communities in the world. We want to feel the thunder of God as he stretches out his hand and he works in this world. What we oftentimes don't realize, though, is if we were to read through Scripture, more times than not, God chooses to work, not through miraculous signs and wonders, but more often through the actions of his people. In other words, if we want to see the thunder of God, it's going to take a little bit of blood, sweat, and tears on our part. And today we're talking about those blind spots, those parts of our life that we just oftentimes don't see. You see, a lot of times we want to see God work. And so we pray and we pray and we ask and we ask and then nothing, no thunder. And we go, what gives, God? Don't you see? Don't you hear? Don't you care? And maybe the question we ought to be asking instead is, is there something in my life that is a hindrance to God? Some part of my life that is out of sync with him that I'm just not seeing, that is almost this wall that I've put up. That's what we're going to be exploring this morning as we talk about blind spots. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. This might be a little, uh, a little challenging for some of us. 
And some of us might walk out of here today feeling like our toes were stepped on a little bit. I want to promise you, that's not my goal. I don't set out to do that. I don't know a lot of you and what's going on in your life. So if you're feeling that this morning, I want to maybe give you a different lens to see maybe this is what we call conviction through the Holy Spirit. That the God of the universe cares so much about you and the quality of your life and your relationship with him that he is actually working on your heart to get your attention. I just want to throw that out there that maybe that's what you experienced this morning. I don't know. So before we get too personal, though, let's, let's back up. Let's look at a story from the life of Moses, because Moses is going to help us understand what we mean when we're talking about blind spots and what we mean whenever we're talking about these walls that we put up sometimes. Our, ta- our text this morning comes from Exodus chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, pop those open. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament, chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible with you, as always, we put the passages on the screens to the side. Personally, I would recommend you download the FCC Mammoth app on your mobile device. You just click the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find sermon notes with all of our passages pulled up, already broken up for us to digest and and how we're going to go through it this morning. So Exodus chapter 4 once again. As you're turning there, getting ready for that, here is something to keep in mind as we talk about blind spots, okay? Everybody's got them. Everybody has blind spots in their life. I've got them. You've got them. Even biblical heroes that we put up on pedestals at times had blind spots in their life, those areas of their life they just, they weren't seeing, stuff that wasn't even on their radar, and we see that in our passage today. A little bit of context to get us up to speed. So Exodus is a story of the Israelites and how God rescues them from slavery in Egypt. It starts off that the Israelites have been enslaved for 400 years, and God appears to a man named Moses, and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the ancient world, and I want you to tell him to collapse his entire slave labor force and bring his economy to a crippling halt. I want you to do that for me, okay? Needless to say, Moses was not real thrilled about that, but after some hem-hawing around, he finally said, all right, God, I'm in. I'll go where you want me to go. And so he went back to his father-in-law, Jethro, Jethro, who was kind of in charge of, of where Moses was living. He said, I'm going to pack up my wife and my kids and all our stuff. We're going to throw them in the minivan, go down the road to Egypt. And that's where our story picks up. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 24, it says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Whoa, there is a change of, of pace that we didn't see coming. But Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, She took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. And so the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. It's a pretty straightforward story, really, when you think about it. Just who hasn't been here? Just this is a slice of life kind of a story, no pun intended. You know, it's just who hasn't had to perform an emergency circumcision on the side of the road? No, this is so weird. (laughs) What is going on here? Here's the thing we need to remember, okay? This story, the book of Exodus, when Moses sat down to write this under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you and I, in our Western 21st century postmodern minds, we weren't even a passing thought in in his thinking, all right? He was not writing to us. We get the advantage of reading it, but his immediate audience was his contemporaries, People that lived in this ancient world, people who were familiar with these customs and with these rituals, and to them, they would read a story like this and likely go, oh yeah, of course she would, that makes perfect sense. But for you and me, there's a lot of question marks surrounding this story. 
I mean, first off, if we were to get into the Hebrew language that it's originally written in, what we'd find is a little confusion. They, they don't really say Moses or Gershom, that's Moses' son. They just use the pronoun him. And so we have to kind of try to make an educated guess as to which him he's talking about here that wasn't circumcised. Now, context would suggest it is most likely Moses' son, because if a grown man has to be circumcised, Moses is on a journey. He, he ain't journeying for a few weeks, you feel me? So chances are this is Moses' son. And now, now why does she touch Moses' feet with Gershom's foreskin? I don't know. Why does she use the phrase bridegroom of blood? What is the significance of that? Mm, no, no clue. What is the connection between touching feet with that, that foreskin and this new phrase of bridegroom of blood? Your guess is as good as mine. Really, there's a lot of question marks here. And if you pick up 10 different commentaries and read about this story, you're going to get 10 different explanations as to what these details might possibly mean. In fact, the one that I, I prefer to use for Exodus, I picked up and read, and the opening line was, this is one of the most debated and confusing stories in all of the text. I went, God, what are you doing to me here? Um, <laughs> but, but here's the deal, okay? As much confusion is surrounding this, there's a, a lot of value in this story. We might wonder, like, why are we even bothering to read this confusing, weird little tale? Here's why. There's, there's a really small percentage of it is, is because I really love weird stories like this. I preach 50 sermons a year, and I teach classes, and just personally, I need to keep it exciting and keep it fresh for you guys, so I'm excited about it. But beyond that, I love little stories like this because they make us stand back and go, wait, what? And, and they make us think about God and what he's doing and, and what's going on here. And, and they make us meditate and they make us roll up our sleeves and do a little bit of work in trying to come to grips with the word of God. And I, and I think maybe that's why these little stories are here is to cause us to stop and to think. Now, what is God doing here? What's the significance of this? That's the one part of this story that actually is not a mystery. We just have to recall a little bit of Old Testament history here. This, this practice of circumcision, by the way, I'm gonna use the word circumcision a lot in the next five minutes. So if that bothers you, sorry, it's just the way that it goes. So this practice of circumcision, it goes back to the days of Genesis to a man called Abraham. And Abraham, you can find his story in Genesis chapter 12 is where it starts. But the gist of it is this, God made a promise to this man. He said, I will make you the father of many nations. I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sands, a grain of sand on the seashore. I will be your God and I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the entire earth. That's the gist of it. And as a sign of this covenant, God instituted circumcision among Israelite men, the, the, the descendants of Abraham. And this practice, this was a sign that the Israelites were God's people. He chose them. It was a sign that he made a binding promise to them and that they belonged to him. Now and forever, they were his. In a lot of ways, this, this practice of circumcision, this was an identity statement. It's really not too dissimilar from how we use last names in our culture today. You know, my last name is Schultz, and it's a sign that I belong to that family. If my last name were Smith or Jones or Roberts, I would belong to those families, right? And, and this is such a strong identity statement that when my wife and I got married, she forsook her last name and she took my last name as her own as this symbol to say that we are no longer two different families. We are one family together. That last name is an identity statement of who we are and who we belong to. And that's essentially the purpose of circumcision. 
It said, we are God's people and we belong to him because of this promise and this covenant that he made with us. And so with that in mind, here's basically what Moses has done. Moses is an Israelite man. He is a man of the promise. And more than that, he's a protector of the promise. God charged him to go to Egypt and to liberate his chosen people that he'd made a promise to. This identity and this this belonging to God is at the center of this whole story. But what Moses has done in failing to circumcise his son is he has neglected to pass on the sign of God's promise. Or essentially, he has neglected to give his own son the last name of God's special chosen people. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, maybe to help us understand, I want you to imagine a a naturalization ceremony. When people immigrate to the United States, there's there's a lot of things they have to do to to gain citizenship. But when they finally completed that, there's this little ceremony, a naturalization ceremony, where they are presented with a number of things, and among them is a small American flag. And that flag is a symbol. And it says to this person, you now, with full rights, with full benefits, fully belong legally in this nation. You have a place here. This is your home. This is who you are. This is who you belong to. It's a very powerful gesture and symbol in the life of that person. But what would it say if that new citizen refused or rejected that symbol, or even worse, if they took it and as they were leaving the room just kind of chucked it in the waste bin? Does that say something about the value that this new identity has for this person? I think it does. And that's essentially what what Moses has done here in neglecting to circumcise his son and to pass on that symbol, that meaning, that belonging, that promise. He's essentially just thrown everything God has done for his people and promised to do in the future in in the waste bin. Now, I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you that Moses hated God or he wanted to be rebellious or anything like that because that's not what we read about Moses leading up to this. Instead, what I think we're seeing is a blind spot. This is part of Moses' life that that isn't in line with God, that isn't in sync with him, but he just legitimately doesn't see it. It's kind of hiding in the shadows. And it falls to his wife, Zipporah, to to act. And as little as she might know about this practice, because she wasn't an Israelite, she does the best she can to honor the God of Israel and to do the job that Moses was supposed to do in the first place. And and there's, there's two reasons why this weird little story is located at this point in the text. First off, it tells us that Moses was still a work in progress. I mean, he was called by God. He was supposed to be this hero. He was going to become this instrumental figure, but he's still a work in progress, just like you and me. He's still got blind spots because everybody has blind spots, remember? And the second reason this is in here is, is to remind us that God takes his covenant, his promises with his people very seriously. Moses may not have been aware of this. It may not even been on his radar, but God sees it very clearly, and it is a very big deal to him. And this is the point where this really weird little story starts to intersect with our lives in a really significant way. Because we've been saying in this series, people of faith, people of belief, we want to see God work in our lives and we want to see him move, and we want to feel the thunder, but sometimes that doesn't happen, and we go, God, what gives? Do you see? Do you care? Do you act? I want to suggest that maybe there's a different question that we should start asking ourselves. I want to suggest that maybe this morning we should start asking, am I blind to obstinance in my life? Is there part of my life that is out of sync with God, 
that is putting up this barrier that I just, I don't see, that I'm not aware of. I found that that life and faith, in a lot of ways, are pretty similar to a watch, like the one I'm wearing. It's got gears in it. And all of those gears have these teeth. And as long as those teeth are shaped the right way and the gears are placed in the right spot, everything just kind of lines up and it works pretty smoothly the way it was designed. But if some of those gears, those teeth are, are gnarled or if they're bent or if some of those gears aren't exactly where they're supposed to be, things don't line up quite as well. There's some friction. The watch may you know, lose a little time here or there. It may become jammed. If it's that bad, it may become completely inoperable. And in a lot of ways, our life is pretty similar. God, God has designed and created life with certain intentions in mind, with a certain shape to our character and to our being and to our ways. But when our ways are, are bent away from God or when parts of our life aren't exactly where he designed them to be, things don't line up that smooth and, and we start to experience some hiccups and some bindings and, and maybe life feels a little jammed up. Maybe we feel like life is is way harder than it's supposed to be or it's way more complicated than what we see going on in other people's lives. Or or maybe it feels like every day I'm just trying to walk uphill or there's like this barrier that just, I can't see it or put my finger on what it is. I just feel like there's something getting in my way that's keeping my life back. If you felt that before, I want to encourage you, ask that question, is there obstinance in my life that I'm, I'm just blind to? Because God does see, and he does care, but he sees and he cares so much that he is not going to be a willing party to our own self-destruction. More likely, he's going to try to get our attention and say, wake up, there's something in your life that's out of sync. And we pray and we pray and we say, God, let me feel the thunder. But sometimes when our lives are out of sync with him, the answer is just going to be no. And we might hear that and say, now, wait a minute. I thought God was supposed to be merciful and loving and forgiving. And he is. He's all those things. Our God is a loving father. But hear me on this. Sometimes being a father means loving your children enough to correct their ways because you don't want to see their life fall apart. And this lines up with exactly who God describes himself to be throughout Scripture. I'm going to share a couple passages with you this morning uh, they're not the popular passages. They're not the ones that you put on bookmarks and on bumper stickers. But they're still just as true of God and his character as any of the other ones. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, ladies, hear me out here. That doesn't mean inferior. That doesn't mean less than or anything like that. It just, just means biologically, there's a different musculature between men and women, okay, physically stronger. He says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Here's the kicker. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. In other words, Peter is writing to these men and he's saying to them, uh, first off, remember that you're dudes. You're probably a lot stronger than your wife. Keep that in mind as you deal with her. Be gentle, be respectful, honor her, and BTW, if you don't, God's not going to listen to your prayers. Whoa. Maybe that wakes us up a little bit, and we might say, wait, wait a minute, he's God. He has to listen to our prayers. No, he doesn't. That's kind of one of the perks of being God. He doesn't have to do anything. 
He especially isn't going to bend over backwards to work his thunder in our lives and to work in our relationships and everything else when we are intentionally mistreating his own daughters. There's not a father in this room that would be like, oh yeah, that guy's terrible to my girl, but you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to bend over backwards to help him. No! Am I amen, dads? Am I wrong? I got boys, so I don't know. Am I wrong? No. God is not going to bend over backwards to help us when our lives are obstinate, when we are opposed to him. And in fact, that's the next passage. It's James chapter 4, verse 6. James is speaking to the church. He's actually quoting from, from the book of Proverbs. He says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And that word favor, we learned that word a few weeks ago. It's the word charis. It means grace. God shows grace to the humble. And James is writing to believing people, Christian people, that said yes to Jesus, that say, I want to follow you. I have faith in you. And James is saying, because of your pride, which in his case was was in the form of self-centeredness, because of your self-centered pride, God is opposed to you right now. Now, he's very quick to remind us as well. Look, if we humble ourselves before God, if we bring our lives back into alignment with him, if we say, I choose your ways and not my own, there's grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness for days and days and days and days and days. But so long as we insist on living our lives in opposition to who God has called us to be, he stands opposed to us. We will not feel the thunder in our lives no matter how earnestly we seek it or ask. And we might say, whoa, whoa, that sounds pretty serious. It is. That's the whole impetus behind this small little story we read in Exodus. God takes his covenant with his people very seriously. I've seen this play out so many times in lives. You've seen it as well, I know. My, my wife, she used to work with a bunch of younger girls, and, and their life was just, between all the, the ex-boyfriends and the baby daddies and the partying on the weekends, it was just drama, 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 you know? It was like watching the Kardashians. And, and like, I'm not kidding, it was. And they would always say things when I talked to them, like, I don't understand why my life is so complicated. I don't understand why I can't meet a nice guy. I don't understand why dating is so hard. And I just, I wanted one of those pictures where I put their ex-boyfriends and their baby daddies and the beer they drank last night and, 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 you know, how they threw up in the toilet the next day. And I just want to be like, look, you bought the messy life starter pack, all right? That's why everything is so hard. You've chosen a life that stands in opposition and is out of sync with who God has called you to be. We could say the same thing about other aspects of our life. You know, this happens financially. When we, we buy into this materialistic message of our culture and we chase down things and stuff and we covet and we don't follow the basic principles of giving and generosity and financial responsibility that God lays out in scripture and we ask, why is everything so difficult? Where'd all the money go? Why don't I feel, con- 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 what's the word I want? Fulfilled, they didn't even start with a C. Why don't I feel fulfilled? And I just want to say, you bought the messy life starter pack. God has designed our financial lives in a way that when it lines up with him, it's a blessing and there's joy. But when we are opposed to that, there's friction and opposition. Our family lives. Why why is my marriage, you know, it's so, so sour? Why don't my kids and I get along? Why don't my parents or my siblings and I, why don't we talk to each other anymore? Again, God has laid out these, these rules, these expectations, these plans for human relationships. And when we simply humble ourselves and walk in them, we find blessing and joy. When we don't, we find friction and frustration. No matter what area of life we're talking about, God lays out in his word this very simple plan, just follow me, walk in my ways, and you will experience the blessing of obedience. 
I saw a fantastic example of that this week. I, we had a gentleman come into the church, just need a little help with something, and, and we got to talking about church. Imagine that. You're in a church. We talk about church. And he said, yeah, my brother started going to church, and now he doesn't have any problems in his life. You know, we got a promotion at work, and he met a nice girl, and he married her, and, you know, he, he just got a new vehicle, and it just seems like things are going really well for him. And, and I was very quick to point out, it's like, you know, church isn't this magic fix-it button where, you, you know, you go to church and you don't have problems anymore. It's not the way it works. However, that is a very symbolic gesture of somebody who is trying to take their faith more seriously, somebody who is trying to know God more fully and to know his word more fully, somebody who has that willingness to humble themselves before God. And here's what tends to happen when we have that posture. We begin to walk more faithfully in his ways, this plan that he calls us to, and we do begin to experience the blessing of obedience. I'm not trying to say that God's up in heaven with binoculars trying to spot all the people that are doing his, his will and say, oh, you, bzz, there's some good stuff. Mm, bzz, there's some good stuff. That's not it. I want to maybe put an idea in your head. What if, this is going to be crazy, what if the creator of the universe ordered things in such a way that when we walk according to his will, we naturally invite the blessing that he always intended I mean, God didn't create this universe with the idea in mind that everybody would suffer and be frustrated. You read Genesis, that's not the plan. It was good, is what we read. What if when we humble ourselves before him and we walk in his ways, we naturally invite the good he always intended into our lives? You think about the qualities that God asks of us, things like respect, things like honesty, integrity, things like selflessness. These are qualities that are almost universally applauded and appreciated. Of course, we're going to experience good in our lives when we walk according to God's ways. That's the way he designed it because he sees and he cares and he cares so much about our lives that he will not be a willing participant in our own self-destruction. He desires something more than that from us. He desires us to experience the blessing of obedience. And so if he has to resist working in our lives to get our attention and shake us awake and say, look, come back to me. Come into sync with who you were created to be. That's what he's going to do. Which that kind of raises a new question. Why does God care so much? I mean, why does he care if my life is in sync with him or, or if I have a relationship with him? Why does he care if I'm following this plan that he created me with? And here's the very short answer. It's because you're his. We belong to him. When we said yes to Christ, if you've made that decision, there's something incredibly significant that happened. We stopped belonging to this world and what makes sense here and what they expect and what they claim we should do. And we started belonging to God and our responsibility is no longer to what seems rational or reasonable or what, what expectations should be in this world. Our responsibility is to the one who saves us. Our responsibility is to the one who gives us life, who brought us out of darkness and brought us into light, who brought us out of fear and brought us into hope, who brought us out of death and has literally given us life that will not end. And as the one who gives us that life, he has every right to say, this is who I've called you to be and this is how you will experience the blessing of my work in your life. If you said yes to Jesus, you are a person of a covenant. But our covenant wasn't sealed with circumcision and dabbing with blood on feet like in our weird little story. Our covenant was sealed through a cross and through blood that washed over our entire being and left us spotless and innocent and righteous without sin in God's sight. Our covenant is in Christ.
And that covenant makes us God's people every bit as much as the Israelites were God's people in the Old Testament. And we are called to be his people every bit as much as they were. And so that means we bring our lives into sync with them. So here's my challenge for us this week, okay? This is for everybody, myself included, because we all need this. My challenge for us is to sit down this week and to open up God's word and to earnestly seek and ask him, God, will you take off my blinders and show me if there is any obstinance in my life? Will you show me the blind spots? Because I desire to humble myself before you. That is not easy work. The work of self-examination is challenging because it requires us to be honest. But as we've been saying throughout this series, if we want to feel the thunder of God in our lives, sometimes it takes a little blood, sweat, and tears on our part. And just as a little extra encouragement, I would remind you how our weird little story in Exodus ended. In verse 26, it says, so the Lord let him alone. If we were to look at the Hebrew and again do a little language research, that word let him alone, that could mean God relented or God eased off, you might say. Previously, there was tension in this story. There was opposition, very serious opposition. But when Moses' life came back into sync with who God had called him to be and what it meant to belong to him and be his people, God eased off. The tension disappeared, and this story of blood and thunder could continue marching on to its incredible conclusion. And the same thing is true in our lives. If you're experiencing that tension, we owe it to God and we owe it to ourselves to step back and ask, is there some sort of tension? Is there friction? Am I out of sync with my creator? And if so, to deal with it. And we will find that that tension likely will dissipate. And we will begin to experience the blessing of obedience and begin to experience the work of God in our lives as he continues to create in us this new being that he calls us to in Christ. That's my challenge. That's my encouragement. Let us be people who take off the blinders and who seek to be in sync with our God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for the challenge of following you. It is not easy, but it is worthy. More than anything, I thank you for Jesus and the grace that we have in him. As somebody who fails a lot, Lord, I just thank you that there is mercy available. I thank you that there are second chances in Christ. And I thank you that you're patient, that you wait for us to come to the realization that we need you, that we are not yet who you intend us to be. We are a work in progress. And I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit living within us, that he provides for us the strength and the guidance necessary to make these changes and take those steps and to humble ourselves and to seek you. And that through this cooperative work, of you and us, Father, you do just this incredible thing in us. You make us new. You make us into people who you always intended us to be. And you fill our lives with joy that you always intended to bless us with. And you fill us with contentment and with peace and with hope and with courage. Father, I thank you that you are kind and that you wait on us. And I thank you for Jesus who makes all of this possible. Father, may we look to him, may we seek him, trust him, lean on him, and rely on him in all things. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.